You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Beatles changed the industry and my company overnight, literally overnight. One day I had some drum sets, I had some amplifiers, I had some guitars. The next day I had nothing. Uh, People were buying everything they could. When I got involved, it was at the very, very early birth of synthesizers and guitar effects starting to become, you know, not three sounds, but now you have all these things that'll do. So there's a lot of excitement. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of 2020. I'm Siobhan here, as always, with Ben and Corey, and we are really, really excited this week to have Sammy Ash of Sam Ash Music Stores, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and No, no yeah. relation, right? No, no uh, relation, just, just right? Real big coincidence. Um, yeah, <laughs> I wanted to talk to face-to-face to the guy that's made me personally bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> but and as we learned, you can always reach an Ash, and I feel like this is a great, great episode to dive in and hear a lot of the backstory of the formation of Sam Ash and hear what he kind of does in the company now it's it's good for uh, musicians obviously if you want to nerd out about some guitar stuff it's also good just for business in general and kind of hearing the philosophy on how you you know run a company that's been around for nearly a hundred years and do it successfully Sam Ash is kind of awesome you should probably yeah. listen to this episode leave it to Ben so you to have know. an awkward silence so Ben, ben talks plenty in these episodes so that awkward silence was actually well deserved <laughs> right absolutely well sub- like and subscribe to 0020-d.com and stay tuned right now part one ladies and gentlemen my name is benny goodman i'm here with my compatriots my cohorts in crime as we've dubbed them Corey peza and siobhan cronin certainly not beauty first <laughs> And of course, today, uh, as usual, this is becoming a thing where we have people way out of our pay grade. So, so out of our pay grade, his name alone makes me smile as a guitar player. But the CEO, excuse me, COO, as it says on Twitter, of Sam Ash, Mr. Sammy Ash, how are you, good sir? Mr. Goodman, uh, Siobhan, Corey. (laughs) This is an absolute treat. You know, uh, I know you love talking about guitars. I love talking about guitars and the history and the product and all that. You have some of the cooler instruments I've seen, including the one that's in your hands right now. So I'm I'm jazzed to talk. Yeah. We'll get, we might have to do four episodes, but we'll see. <laughs> oh, yeah that's, yeah. that's how it always rolls with us. By the time we get to the end of episode two, we're like, okay, not nearly enough time. Yes. But yeah, and we're even... Go ahead, go ahead. You're going to hear, hear plenty about uh, Ben, especially, and all, all his <laughs> things. But what we're really interested in and what our, our viewers and listeners are interested in is, is you. Now, Sammy Ash, Sam Ash, I'm, I'm sensing a connection between the, this... Uh, the store and, and yourself here. Can, can maybe you let our listeners and viewers know uh, exactly what you do? Okay. I am 
I'm Sammy Ash. COO, Sam Ash Music Corporation. I just celebrated my 50th year with the company. I started wow. as a teenager. Congratulations. I got, I got paid for the first time with an actual check in 1972. Prior to that, it was like hot dogs and other kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but I, I am one of those in it to win it kind of guys. I started out in the warehouse. In, oh, we didn't have warehouses. We started out in the basement. Then the warehouse, and I worked my way up in sales. I became a store manager, cut my teeth for a number of years, got kicked upstairs to do buying. And through all of this, I'm having my various experiences and, and growth with inside this industry. And to the point now where, um, what do I do? Okay, uh, besides what I do, for guitars and all that kind of stuff. I'm the head of the customer service division of the company. I am the head of new, excuse me, of used and vintage guitar purchases. Um, and basically we all wear a ton of hats in here. I have a bunch of responsibilities as do my brothers, as do my sons, as do my nephews. Nobody does one gig. Um, and, you know, I, I love it. I'm still, to this day, happy to go to work. I, I'm, you know, um, I'm part of what we call the G.O.D. group, Guitars of Distinction. So all the really, really cool stuff comes into my office first. So we're looking, we, we're looking at everything first and we're a bunch of, you know, we're all guitar players. So with kids in candy stores, we open it up, we take a look at it. What do you think? We just had a guitar, which I will not name. It was very expensive, and we all were looking around and saying, "Wow, you know, it's not really that cool." But the the fact is, we all thought the same thing, and we look at instruments, you know, a little bit different. We look at instruments as people that love the instrument, not as a commodity. Yeah, a guitar costs ten thousand dollars. Oh well, maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't. That's not the situation. What about the instrument? Is it a good instrument? And and we have a lot of fun like that. My brother is a guitar player, so he's always coming in and out trying to figure stuff out. My son is a Berkeley graduate as guitar, and he gets jazzed. So it, it's still a, a really fun atmosphere coming to work. That's awesome. It's, I think it's such a unique opportunity to talk to you because it seems like you said you started working in what was the basement, right? So you've seen such yes. a large growth. You know, we know Sam Ash now is a, an empire of music and um, a place that we all go into. Oh, and it, okay. yeah, Well, I don't know. That, that's my, I, I, that's my perspective. It. You know, I like when, it. anytime I walk into a store, yeah, I mean, it's so big. There's so much stuff. There's like, you know, it does seem like an empire to me. And so I'm curious to hear, you know, what it was like sort of observing and being a part of the growth from beginning to end. Can you talk about some of those early days when you first got started, what it was like being a part of the company at that point? Sure. It was, it was explosive. Uh, you know, we've been around for 98 years. So we went through Only the Beatles, but <laughs> Only 98 years, 98 years, just... no convictions. Uh, okay. We went through, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the Beatles, the Beatles changed the industry and my company overnight literally overnight one day i had some drum sets i had some amplifiers i had some guitars the next day i had nothing uh people were buying everything they could when i got involved it was at the very very early birth 
of synthesizers and guitar effects starting to become, you know, not three sounds, but now you have all these things that'll do. So there's a lot of excitement going on at that time. You know, we're bringing in, suddenly we're a Moog dealer, an Oberheim dealer. We are, you know, we were always Gibson, we were always Fender, but all of these other lines, there's this crazy company called Paul Reed Smith, who wants a time in the sun. And uh, we were very fortunate to be there from day one. I mean, we we gave him, and, and Paul will tell you, we gave him the purchase order that he brought to the bank to get his loan. And it's in the PRS book. Uh, Paul and I are friends since 1984. Uh, there's the story of how I met him. Uh, I was home with pneumonia. And he's in my store in White Plains, which is your, normally where I would run it. And. I have to tell him in his voice like that. Uh, you gotta go see my brother in New York City. So, um, you know, he made something that instantly, instantly, we looked at and said, "This guy's got something going on." So, little things like that. All of these, we were the very first electroharmonics dealer. Mike came to my father with this little thing called an LPB one. And my father was the only one who gave him any time. So we bought that. And, you know, Mike and my father, Mike and I have been friends forever. I could go down the line. I, I don't want to just sit and, and. But, yeah, <laughs> there's definitely Samish music definitely played an important part of what was going on uh, in the country, or at least uh, I'm going to say on the West Coast. Oh, excuse me. I don't live in the West Coast, on the <laughs> East Coast of the United yeah. States. We, we definitely had a, a certain amount of impact. I'm, I'm very curious because I remember going to the Zildjian factory and they said it was literally overnight. It was interesting to hear you say this. Um, after the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan, that they got more orders for cymbals than had ever happened, like to a crazy magnitude. And to this day, I believe they have not gotten more orders than after the, the Ed Sullivan show. For the Beatles and they weren't able to fulfill them and that basically overnight they couldn't their whole company was like in disarray because of tens of thousands of orders just because of one show can you well, do you remember that show yes. do you remember that like going to work the next day and being like oh golly gee whiz um no no I don't I was I was actually kind of young at the time I didn't everyone else realized the impact of what was going on I didn't quite understand it until I started seeing people I've never seen come into our stores, people looking for things I didn't even know existed, brands that they were looking for, because this person was playing that acoustic amplifier. Can you do? So we became an acoustic dealer. Somebody else was playing a custom amplifier. We became a custom amplifier dealer. So we, we always liked being on the forefront, but that impact didn't catch on to me. But there is something. I mean, everybody looks today at the Ludwig Drum Company. You know, it's rather small by comparison. 1968, the Ludwig Drum Company was the biggest and most powerful company in the United States. They were bigger than Gibson, Fender, everybody. And that's all because of Ringo Starr. Well, let's, I mean, maybe going back. So before that point, obviously things changed a lot, but what did the company look like before that happened? What was, um, you know, sort of the specialty or what was, what was going on? What sorts of things were you doing and what was the company all about at that point before things started to explode? 
Well, if you came into Sam Ash music at around 1964, you saw a fair amount. And we have some pictures that you know I can send you if you want to superimpose. But where the amplifier department is seven small amplifiers way on a top shelf that you have to go to an, uh, to get on uh, a ladder to get to. That was so unimportant. Uh, a lot of saxophones, a lot of trumpets, violins, because that was what my grandfather, he was a violinist. Oh, so wow, was, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I, I actually, I have his fiddle here someplace. Um, it's a, one of our one of our treasured things but um yeah it was the antithesis of a rock shop i mean there was no rock we had gibson les pauls that my father blew out he blew out 59 and 60 les pauls because they didn't sell because they were too heavy we blew them out Okay, I give you an idea how things, the same guitar that people are willing to pay a half a billion dollars for, we were lucky to get a buck and a quarter, 125. So that, that's a good, a good crazy, return if you bought it in 1960. Yeah, uh, but nobody wanted them. We closed them out. But wow. that, was, that was the way it was in the early days pre-Beatles. And then when the wow. Beatles hit, it, it, we transformed our stores by necessity. The stores just, you know, we would have 30 rows of sheet music, uh, three solid body guitars, three semi-hollow guitars, three jazz guitars, a bunch of Martin and Gibson flat tops. And that was the makeup of, you know, technically it became a folk thing, which we were also into the folk instruments before the rock and roll and rock and roll just decimated everything else. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's incredible crazy. because I, I think of it now, of course, as like a primarily rock and roll, you know, you go in and there's hundreds of guitars and I'm a violinist myself. So, you know, when I go to the violin section, I mean, it's big, you know, there's still a lot going on there, but I, I never realized that, that, uh, that was the history behind it. So that's incredible. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, not 98 years. So like that, 98 years ago, I don't know anything about the history of, of music retail in that sense. Was this like a revolutionary thing to be able to have like a shop, you know, in New York or something? Oh, absolutely. You sold it? it was in Brooklyn. And my grandfather was a relatively successful uh, violinist band orchestra leader, uh, Sam Ash Club Society Orchestra. And he would do gigs. And that was how my father and my uncle were little little children remember that my grandfather would go out do a gig come back with three dollars they could pay the rent or whatever it would be but as my father uncle and then my aunt appeared it was precarious being a band leader because you didn't have gigs steady just kind of like today i mean yeah sure uh who would have so thought that my grand my actually it was my grandmother who thought running a music store would be great. So they had a music store downstairs. They lived upstairs. They were open from nine until somebody went to sleep. Kind of, you know, real, real salt of the earth people. Uh, the story about my grandmother um, pawning her ring to open, to get a deposit on the store is very true. You know, all wow. of those hokey things you hear about, they were all real. I mean, we were... 
they were poor. They really, they worked and worked. And then my father and uncle came in around World War, actually, yeah, around World War II. See, one of the reasons we, we had to open a store is it was 1924. Already the world was starting to get rocky prior mm-hmm. to the crash. So you really needed something stable. And even when we had the store and it was stable, there were tough times. It was the depression. You know, my father, if somebody wanted a piece of sheet music that was 50 cents, my father would take this the train to New York City to the publisher, get it, bring it back, they'd make five cents, whatever it would take, you know. But that's that's how we built the business. All right now we're on our fourth generation. This is five in the fourth generation. I, I I'm thrilled. It's pretty incredible to have that longevity. And uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, some of the relationships you developed with now pretty iconic brands early on. Uh, do you think there was a business model or approach with you guys that that helped have that longevity and and build the the store from what it was you know initially to what it has become today because it's not there's not a ton of big music stores out there right now that was my father's vision you know customers would come in and ask for things that he didn't have and he'd look about it and see if this is something we should carry extremely progressive in terms of carrying it he wanted to be first on everything we made we were a major synthesizer dealer before the impact of the synthesizer was truly felt uh, i'm not going to say for the world but i know east coast we were the first arp first oberheim first moog uh first no not the first sequential circuits um arp i mean we were very very first when it came to guitar effects we were also first. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll toot my own horn here, but I'm so old school, I actually named the Tube Screamer. You this named is, it? What? I named it. And you Shut can go up. In, if you go into <laughs> Guitar play, uh, Guitar Player Magazine, Sammy Ash, Ibanez, there's the quote. He came in, I was working in the Manhattan store. He came, the, the designer who was a friend of ours, came over to my father. My father says, talk to Sammy. He knows about effects. And I I did the analogy. Do you know why they call a crybaby a crybaby? Well, I think this makes your tube scream. The next thing I know, it's a tube screamer. But that, <laughs> wow. that's an absolutely, that's a verifiable true story. I, I don't lie about things. I don't, I don't like to, to promote myself too much. But on a thing like that, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I gotta say it. I'm, Worth I'm, bragging. Well, that's been in my effect chain since day one. It's like, yeah. oh, how do you make this sound better? Just put a tube screamer in one front of, of it. Really, one of the most well-known effects pedals of all time. That's incredible. I have like three. That's like I I actually hate pedals. In fact, Sammy, <laughs> I'll tell you why. Here, because you asked me, of course, with your brain. Um, it, I can't stand plugging things in with the wrong AC adapter. The impedance is wrong. It, then you use a cable. And you're like, is it? Is this what's making yeah. the noise? I saw Steve Vai live about 10 years ago. And for 15 minutes, he's trying to figure out what's wrong in his whole chain. And finally <laughs> figures out you know, it's his bad horse. He's his own yeah. claw pedal. And that's when I realized, like, I, I'd even plug in my tuner. And it just sucks tone and noise, which is the reason why I've started using Kemper. Because it doesn't sound better, but there's no noise. So for that yeah. reason alone, it sounds better to me. Is there Especially ever, if is you're there, using P90s. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, I mean, you you understand 
So the one thing I will bring out every once in a while is a tube screamer. Because it's one of the only things I'm like, oh, yeah, use a tube screamer. Well, that's just obvious. Like, that's a thing you just have to do if you're in a studio. So I tip my hat to you because it does make my tube or my Kemper tube oh. scream. Uh, I completely forgot that I had even done it until uh, somebody had reminded me that, did you see the guitar player article? And I go, no. Well, I think you should. And then I read it. I go, oh, yeah, I, I remember doing that. I completely had forgotten about it at the time. I think uh, Ibanez owes you a check. Yeah. <laughs> well, they gave me, when they did the reissue made in Japan, they gave me number four, which is um, my number. I have an awful lot of number four things, uh, guitars and effects and stuff like that uh, through various, I'm not quite 100% no, sure when it started, but I have, uh, I don't know, 25 different serial number four items. No, no, I got 35 ovation serial number four items. I got a lot of them. It just became my thing. So I'm not the only neurotic person that sees numbers and everything. I'm like, oh my God, it says two, two, two. It's a session. It's made for me. Yeah, I mean, things like. We're opening like, the can of worms. Don't cry baby the number YouTube four. Guys. Cry baby number four. Oh yeah, no big deal. You have to check, watch all the YouTube these, cast for all this. All of the uh, reissue uh -huh. are number four. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, I have PRS number four. I got a the whole fourth lot ever, of stuff. The, 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 yeah. the, the, the uh, fourth I one have, made in 85? The fourth PRS made in 85? Yeah. Or, I have the fourth and the sixth. I have the Blue Pearl prototype. Uh, I have... This is one of two guitars ever made in Japan. Paul wants it back. He wants to cut the neck off. He can't stand to know it exists. I have a... There's a guitar, <laughs> Sammy, I was so close to that you'll appreciate this. So, in 1984... Paul Reed Smith comes to EU Wurlitzer in, in, in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm sure you're familiar. And he that gave- That was the trip. That was the same trip. Yeah, he gave one of his custom 24s, uh, the blue little uh, one to the store. And for years, if you went to EU Wurlitzer in, in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, you could rent a guitar. And the guitar that they would rent you was his 84 prototype PRS. Finally, after 20 years of Jay Tulio, saying, don't, don't let this out. They gave it to him. And it is apparently what Paul had gone around to the same trip as you. And my, my buddy Jay now has this beat up because they used it yeah. for like Bye Bye Birdie and shit, just like that Gibson Modern that somehow disappeared. Um, they used it and he now has this unnumbered, technically pre-factory, which people get incorrect all the time. That does not refer to 1985 to 1992. It means no. prior to 1985. I have the Blue Pearl with no serial number. It's probably the twin of that instrument. Twin. Like I said, I would have had it here, but you know, I've got a bunch of the other things instead. Uh, all the real top, top stuff is kind of like stashed away. But um, yeah. This was after just leaning against my sofa. So. <laughs> <sighs> well, the, to give you an idea, Paul's firstborn is named Sam, so. Listen, I have a very, I have a love-hate relationship with Paul Reed Smith because he's my favorite ever. In fact, I remember working at Gordon's Music in Worcester, Massachusetts when I was 15 years old in the Denholm building in Worcester, Massachusetts. And uh, I, I remember a PRS coming in and seeing the birds. And I looked over at my manager and said, what's that? 
And she said, that's a Paul Reed Smith. Only rich people have them. And they just hang them on their walls. They don't actually play with them. I was like, really? That's what she said to me, Terry. She was my manager. I remember thinking to myself, oh, I need that one. And I, I, I dreamed of Paul Reed Smith. And then I got signed when I was in at Northeastern my freshman year by our buddy, our, our collective buddy who's actually behind this uh, podcast, Scott Benson. And the first thing he did was give me a custom 22 10 top in teal. It was my favorite color. And I remember sleeping with that guitar and thinking I had one life. And then one day I walked into Guitar Center because my friends had tipped me off, said, Paul Reed Smith is coming to the store. So I obviously stalked him. And uh, I went in. Of course, ironically, I had a Gibson and a Fender both being fixed at uh, the Guitar Center when you could trust your stuff to those people. Um, and Paul Reed Smith looks at me and goes, of course, no Paul Reed Smith. I said, oh, no, mine are all fine. I never need to bring them in for tune-ups. And he was laughing. And he said, will you come over and uh, and try out this amp? And he had like the, the PRS-H amp or whatever and sat there and I pinned it immediately. He goes, is that what, what you kids do? Is it you pin it? And I'm like, yeah, dude, get used to the metal people. And like we talked for 20, 20 minutes. I saw him again. He remembered me the whole nine. And then I called him about this guitar. And he didn't really like me very much. He was very cantankerous. And it made me cry, actually. I was very upset. Oh, he was, man. He was not nice. And finally, because he had asked me, can I send him pictures and videos of all of this? And I had. And he just hadn't checked his email. And when he walked through them, he saw my whole wall of Paul Reed Smith guitars. And out of totally eviscerating me, yeah. for lack of a better term, he goes, oh, that's a really nice collection of Paul Reed Smiths. And it was nice for all of one moment and then went back to ripping my head off. And I said to myself, the only thing better than being friends with Paul Reed Smith is having the story where my favorite guitar builder ever, because he's the greatest and he's, his guitars are the greatest and I, I love him, but he doesn't like me. <laughs> okay, so back to our actual guest on the okay, show. Can, we can, can interview I, can you I later. Give you a little, can I give you a little hardly known PRS story that you yes, mentioned please. birds? Uh, Paul had the birds and I believe he had registered the birds. Yamaha came out with a line of acoustics with birds on the fingerboard. I was there when Paul went up to Yamaha and asked them to stop, and they did. I thought it was the silliest thing I've ever heard, that little tiny Paul Reed Smith would go up against major Yamaha. He doesn't have a chance. They stopped. They just, they, I don't know if there was an attorney's letter involved or anything, but I, I saw him ask and they stopped. So there is a very few amount of Yamaha acoustic guitars with birds on the fingerboard that people don't know are actually quite valuable. Oh man, I need to go like, immediately search for those. Yeah, they're, oh, they're, they're now, late 80s. Hammer. They're late 80s. Interesting. Red label? Are those the red label? Are they Japanese I, I don't remember the label, but like I said, it's late 80s and they're the only ones that have birds on them. Well, that's your homework Fair for enough. tonight, Ben. There you go. <laughs> Find oh, them yeah, on I'll the internet. I'll be in a rabbit hole in like five minutes. Oh, I know. So let, let's go back a little bit. So, you, you know, we were talking about being the first at, at having new things and discovering new technologies and having it in the store. Um, I'm curious to hear, at what point did the one store turn into another store, turn into multiple stores? When did that growth begin? That's okay. I got a gazillion stories and they, that you're actually feeding me great lines here. Okay, okay. good. Okay. Sam it's almost like she's done this. <laughs> Sam Ash Music was one store in Brooklyn, small. It wasn't one of our bigger Brooklyn stores that came later. Uh, my father had two boys. 
Then he had uh, me, and they realized that it was way too small for a family, so they looked on Long Island, and they bought a place in Franklin Square. From there, we opened our second store, which was in Hempstead, combination of number one, someplace my mother could work, who was a major force in my business, and someplace where my uncle who lived in Brooklyn. So this was kind of, it worked out for both. We became a chain because of Fred Gretsch. We were very good friends from the Brooklyn days. This is the Fred Gretsch of, uh, I guess he's it was Fred's uncle. And he was the banker and he had a Cadillac and he had leather seats and he threw my father and my uncle in the back of his Cadillac with leather seats. They've never been in either. And he drove them out to this faraway land called Huntington, Long Island. And because of Fred, we opened a third store and became a chain. So it keeps coming back to inside this business. Somehow or another, we keep finding ourselves increasing within in, in this business, within this industry, with industry people. And that, that is as gratifying as it gets. I mean, it was really, to have Fred Gretsch take my father and my uncle to find another store, that's kind of cool. That's, that's amazing. Pretty, that's like the beginning of history for all musical stuff. It's, I mean, it's it's crazy. And as it should be, because you have a giant picture of Les Paul looking down on you. I love the fact that you have this array. And if you, you guys aren't watching the YouTube, you have to tune in to the YouTube and see what Sammy's office is like. Because if you think I'm trying to flex with my keyboards, this dude clearly set up the greatest planogram of rare PRSs. And then all of a sudden, sandwiched in between is a lovely portrait of the one and only Les Paul which I think is, is a beautiful kind of almost metaphor, Sammy. Well, uh, Paul love, loved the Les Paul. He didn't, I don't think he met Les all that many times. He did become very good friends with... Uh, uh, McCarty. McCarty, thank you, who was the president at that time. Um, very good friends to the point where McCarty gave... Paul has all the original blueprints for the Les Paul, the Flying V, the 335, all of that, he keeps it in a box. And Mr. McCarty, Ted gave them to Paul. And whenever we go to Paul Reed Smith and he's doing comparisons, he always pulls out an older Les Paul to compare to the current instruments and to show how far they're not that different. So his love affair, I mean, his first original guitars were all junior styles. You know, plank. Well, he, he used to take. Yeah, he took P, PAF humbuckers. All of his early stuff were just modified PAFs. He yeah. would just do it himself. And he's so much of a psychopath. He actually bought the the machine with all the copper wiring, right? For uh, for all the pickups. So he'll have his pickups with the same wiring that were found in fifty eight PAFs, or yeah, the same winder. He, he's crazy. He tried to be as accurate as possible, with still keeping his own spin on what was going on. He was really the, uh, the very first threat uh, to the Gibson company that they ever had. You know, somebody who was going up against with an arch top, carved top and two humbuckers with a set neck. So, you know, Henry sued him for that. So. 
going I, back. I heard that Tremonti had even helped Paul Reed Smith when he was doing that because I think Gibson could have taken Paul Reed, uh, Paul Reed Smith for all that they were worth. But one of the greatest things I remember seeing was, I, I, you know, Paul saying something to the effect of, yeah, but you'd never confuse a PRS for a Gibson, which I just thought was amazing. It, it's true, but you can get a jury to do anything. There was uh, all these recent lawsuits that are going around. It, it depends on how you sell it. Very simple. Certain decisions were made, which I didn't specifically agree with, but you know, they were made based on information that, for the most part, laypersons were involved in. So maybe if it was guitar players, it might have been a little bit different. Well, let me but ask you. Way, it, it's shaken out. Uh, well, I have to ask you because now you've brought up a good point. So I love Paul Reed Smith, and I actually even have a, a video um, which seems to do well on my Neuronic Guitars channel talking about – I personally like the, the PRS SE Silver Sky even better than my Nebula. I have an expensive, fancy-schmancy oh, Nebula. Fancy nebula. That's, that's yeah, oh, yeah, rare. Cool. Doesn't sound as good in my opinion. Uh, really? And one, yeah, well, that's – so this is one of the things I want to talk about. So you have – Les Pauls, and then you have PRS single cuts, and now you have the Silver Sky, which in all defense of Fender is essentially just a Strat. What do you think about that as a retailer? Is it cool that he's doing that? Is it cool that other companies have been doing this, but now we're looking at Paul Reed Smith because he's certainly not the first to do this kind of thing? Well, I think the fact that he did it in conjunction with John Mayer mm -hmm. uh, had a lot to do with the success. I mean, John doesn't isn't just a i don't know john so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna just say it like that but john is a guitar guy you know he loves the instrument itself not just the playing of it he likes to take them apart he likes to be involved with the designing i mean he was hands-on when he'd worked on his martin he was hands-on when he worked on his paul reed smith and then and the amplifiers same thing he was there when they were voicing everything and the same thing came out with here. Why they decided to do it, I don't know. I mean, that was serious backdoor stuff. But the success actually surprised me. I really didn't think it would be as big as it had become. But the Paul Reed Smith Army fans are so dedicated that if you wanted to buy a Strat, but I could buy it with Paul's name on it, that's the one I want. So it was at least immediately accepted by his constituents. And then he won over a lot of Fender people as well. It is a really good guitar. I mean, you can't say, I, I can't say anything negative, not that I want to, but it's a really good guitar. And he nailed it on the first. And obviously, according to, to you, Benny, that he improved it when he came out with the import. A hundred percent he improved it. In fact, so I did a, an online thing about it. So I, I got the Nebula. after. So when I got the SE, I actually do an unboxing. And I couldn't believe it because the reason I bought it was because John Mayer's sitting there going, it plays piano chords up here, all nice with all these different phrasings. And I'm like, my fenders always sound wonky up there. I took this thing right out of the damn box, and it was per it was tuned. I'm like, this thing's perfect. It was so perfect that when I got this $10,000 Nebula and I plugged it in, everyone's like, oh, it's clearer pickups. I actually liked my SE better 
Not only because of the way the neck was uh, sanded, it's got like this beautiful satiny thing to it, to the shape, to the type of the frets that he uses, the pickups are louder. And I'm a nerd. I'm one of those guys that, like, you know, if you go into Best Buy, the ticket, the, the, the TV with the more vivid, it's like burning your eyes out. Oh, that one must be better. The guy who turns up all the treble and bass on all the stereos, those ones are better. You put up the pickup just a little bit louder. Of course the EMG sounds better to me. I'm a dumbass. <laughs> just saying. For, if you're selling them, that's why. Because in my opinion, there's no reason to spend $2,800 more when you can just get a dragon fruit one. SE is an SE. Um, uh, uh, Silver Skies and Silver Sky SE is perennial back order. They are hot. People want them. I mean, the SE came in at a price point which makes a lot of sense. And if you weren't sure before, you know, at the new price point, at least you'll take a look at it and you give it a shot if you can find one on display. Yeah. Well, you said something really interesting going back to um, Paul Reed Smith and, you know, him having his name on it and that you know, convinced fans or people that were just supportive of that brand that they would buy something even though there was a comparable product. I'm interested in hearing you talk about coming back to Sam Ash as an enterprise. What is behind the brand of that? You know, what um, what is it that keeps people loyal or brings people in? Maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, from working in operations, the, the daily work that you do, you know, what is it that that brings in or creates the customer for your empire? I'm going to go with the first thing you made a statement, which is loyalty. To give you an idea of the difference of our company versus a lot of others, I have an excess of 100 people in this company who's been with me for more than 20. I, me. I, when I say me, I mean us. It's a of family course, yeah. business. I am not the, uh, the end-all, be-all by any means. But I have over 100 people who's been with this company for over 20 years. 100. But, you know, that's incredible. It's, it's the way we are. I mean, you work for this company. You're a valuable employee. We want you to be here for as long as possible. When you get down to 10 years, it's in the hundreds, so on and so forth. We don't churn people out. We find reasons for them to stay. And a lot of that comes out in, to the customer. You know, when you walk into a Sam Ash music store and the manager's been there for the past 10 years, it's a very comforting thing. No, that's but that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, I can say, you know, from my experience, having been someone that didn't know a lot about, let's say, technology when I was getting started with electric violence stuff, I remember going into Sam Ash stores and the people that were there were there for a long time and they knew where every product was and they could tell me about it and kind of educate me a little bit so that, yeah, I can completely see how that that also transfers onto the customer. Well, um, the other, other one of the reasons that we do have this loyalty is the fact that first my, technically it was my grandmother, then my uncle, and when he passed, it was turned to me, is you can reach an ash, period. It doesn't mean you, you, you don't end up on a brick wall you can get to an ash. You always could. If there was a customer, oh, I, sorry, I'm doing it again. Okay. Uh, if there was a customer service issue that could not be solved, it can be solved. And it's, a, it's very different when you're working in other companies. When you have a company line and that's it, you can't take it to a higher level. With here, you do. You can get to Sammy Ash and say, hey, man, I'm pissed. This happened. 
or you know you've got the greatest guy, the greatest salesman in your Jacksonville store all of these things that the sounding board that the people want to know want to hear that comes back and uh, people want to know if I I got hurt I had a problem I got hurt it was solved and you know it was solved by Sammy Ash wow and it's not one or two these are very daily situations good and bad and um you know if you can't reach sammy you can reach ben you can reach richard i mean we're there this is what we do we're not elusive there's no screens uh, a salesman a, a salesperson on my floor can reach me you don't have to go to your manager who then goes to this then goes to that we have direct line of communication my door is closed for this podcast, but it's literally, literally always open. Mm -hmm. Wow. They're very Absolutely. different in that way. Well, I mean, let me ask you. Th so that could, I guess, depend on if you're a cool person or a jerk, too. Oh, uh, well, I, I have a way. I have a way of getting rid of you if you're a jerk. You, you really don't <laughs> last long. We get an awful lot of feedback from our customers and from other people in the stores. You know, we're a family business. If you're a loud mouth or you tend to curse or whatever it might be, or you're drinking on the job, these things are not acceptable at, at all. I mean, we respect you. We expect you to respect us and our customers. If not, it was nice knowing you. That's it. Yeah, that's such a New York way of putting it too. And, and one of the things I also notice whenever I make a decision, I have Les Paul looking at me when I'm when I'm practicing. I notice behind you, you have the identical Les Paul picture, also staring at you. <laughs> that is so freaking weird. That is so weird. Um, well, this is from Les Paul's actual yeah. personal collection. He yeah. had, of course, he had a bunch of. He has different eight by tens throughout all the ages saved. So I have. I've been lucky enough where I actually have the same one that they have in the Gibson factory from like 1953 of him and Mary. Like that's the one that also stares at me. So everywhere I practice, there's a picture of Les staring at me. But I wanted to also extend to you because you had showed me a guitar and I want to ask you about this instrument. But I'd like you to be on my Les Paul documentary because I can't imagine anything cooler than in 1988 when Brian Setzer played for Les Paul's 72nd birthday. And there's a whole bunch of guests. I was there. And you, you, I know, you, sir, were backstage and had a guitar signed by all of them. I have it can here. You tell, can you tell us what happened? Because Corey and Siobhan may not know this story. It's one of the greatest stories about Les Paul as far as if you could be at one show, this was the one. But I just want to point something out on my picture. 1975 uh, in... October, we started to grand open our Paramus store. Les was the very first person to do, you know, a grand opening concert in the store. Wow. I was in a very, very bad car accident, so I wasn't there for that. I was, I was in a burn unit for three months. Oh my gosh! Wrote, Holy crap! Um, a speedy recovery, Les Paul, because uh, when he wanted to know where was I, my father told him. And uh, that's crazy. a nice guy. He was just a nice guy. But uh, yeah, okay. You, okay, I'm going to get up again. <laughs> if you're not watching the YouTube, guys, you have to watch the YouTube. To explain this by showing it, 
Sorry that I'm off screen. I know it's very unprofessional. It's okay. <laughs> we can still hear you. We, yeah, we, we can still hear you. This is old pink. Oh, wow. That, that's one uh, that I'll I would do like. i a fast story because otherwise it'll take way too long. Uh, the old pink by my Gibson rep, Dave Pastore, calls me up one day and he says, I need you to come to New York City now. I go, what do you mean now? <laughs> He goes, I need you to come to New York City. I go, why, David? He goes, I'm promising you it's going to be a great thing, but I'm not supposed to talk about it. Dave, you know, so he kind of gave me a hint that it was Les Paul's birthday, but he never said that it was going to be the world of guitar players. So for some reason, we had this guitar, which is a pink metallic Les Paul custom, which couldn't sell. We had it for three years Maybe because it was pink. Four years, I don't know. It's so literally my favorite color on a Les Paul. It's so it's like Pepto Bismol. It. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, what made me take it? I don't remember why I grabbed it, but I brought it to the show, and there was, like you said, it was Brian Setzer and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and all of those guys. Every well, on, we haven't listed it up. I, I know, I know this, but they don't know this. So, yeah. Les Paul, they had they had a birthday party for him, it was and his Brian Setzer's birthday. Yes, and Brian Pe- Setzer is playing. But then all of a sudden, all these guys start walking out on stage, and it's Jimmy Page, it's Jeff Beck, it's BB King, it's Eddie freaking Van Halen, isn't it? Paul like David Gilmore, David Gilmore. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, David. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, there we go on the side of the Les Paul. Yeah. But, oh you know, um, I, I might have looked like an a, um, <clears throat> I may have looked like an a-hole <laughs> at the time, but I have this thing now. You know, it's signed You're just by B.B. King, The story Jan of Ben's Hummer. life. You may have looked like an asshole, but now he has all these things signed on his wall. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan here, Ned Steinberger, Eddie, uh, Jimmy Page, John Bon Jovi. Uh, Elliot Easton, Elliot and I are good friends. Julian Lennon, uh, oh, wow. of course, Les Paul, and That's me. So, <laughs> nice. uh, yeah, it, it's one of my treasured pieces. I'll probably now just break it by rolling into it, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> that's the story um, of my life. <laughs> but yeah, I, I got I got the bug early for for the guitar. I was a saxophone player. There was no David Sanborn for me to want to emulate. I didn't want to be Stan Getz, and I couldn't meet girls. So (laughs) every guitar player I know, it's the same thing. So, um, you know, I started getting into the guitar, and then I started getting into the physicality of the instrument. I'm a much, I, I know the instrument better than I can play it. I collect better than I can play, but I have an intimate knowledge of acoustic and electric guitars. I've never built one from scratch, but I know how everyone is built. And I just, the, the, I was just in awe of it and the, and the constant changing and upgrading and downgrading. I mean, you know, Martin will admit that the 70s was not their best era. Gibson will admit Norland was not their best era. So I, I watched all these things and I saw improvements and I saw disasters coming through and it, it kept bonding me to this thing with six strings on it, 
My license plate is six stringer. I mean, I, I, I really do live it. How do you um, feel about robot tuners? Oh, I thought that was a mistake from day one. Uh, not, I shouldn't say a mistake. It should have been an option. It shouldn't have been shoved down your throat. Uh, they actually do work. But I find I, I, I thought they were completely superfluous. Can I, can I tell you a story that you might appreciate being Absolutely. in retail? So in show, 2008, show. my buddy got a bunch of the dark fire first, uh, first run. So for those that don't know, it was the first Les Paul with, a, uh, with the robot tuners. And they're first generation robot tuners because that's important because the new ones, you could turn them either way. But the first generation only went one direction, meaning that if it stopped working, you couldn't tune it. So I got this guitar, the Darkfire, and man, that thing tuned awesome. It was beautiful. It was red. It had black, all this stuff. Yeah. And I played like 100 shows with it. And then like one time, I'm on stage in front of 300 people when that was actually a thing. You could be in a band and play in front of 300 people on a Thursday. And it wouldn't tune my D string. In fact, it started turning the opposite direction while I was on stage. And I said, oh, no. And I didn't have a backup guitar. In fact, I had to go ask the other band, can I use their guitar? Because my Les Paul kept going the wrong direction. Sent it back to Gibson. Replaced it. This was the first of 13 times I sent it back to Gibson within the year fixing thing or whatever, uh, within the warranty. And finally, the guy who had a very pleasant Tennessee accent on the phone said, well, we had this thing at NAMM where he had a bunch of them and they did the same thing. And I said, hey, man. Do you remember when I called you five years ago and you told me the same story? And he goes, do you want a new guitar? And I said, yes. And Gibson sent me a new guitar for that silly, silly robot craziness. And we After must have eight taken years. Those, we've, we took hundreds of those tuners off on, of Les Paul's and put the Grovers on just to sell them. It was, wow. It was, yeah. If you, and right now, if you wanted to try uh, find a robot charger, you can't. It's... Well, one of the greatest things ever is that they made all these beautiful guitars. I, I think, and you could tell me if, if, if you think this too, they put real Mother of Pearl back on them and gave these guitars like classics, nicer tops than they would normally have. So they were rated it like BB. I have some classics with AAA tops that had robot tuners. And because they had these robot tuners, you could steal these guitars because nobody wants to touch like the HP, the high performance guitar, because they all had robot tuners, even when people change them. So you can buy these beautiful AAA, quadruple A top guitars with the real mother of pearl inlays. But just because people knew that those models had the robot tuners, they stay away. Yep. And if you didn't change your mouth, they're still not selling. Oh, no. Pretty amazing what he did. But uh, let's not talk about uh, the past like that. <laughs> I was just curious because that really upset me because I'm like, one of the things I can do is like, it's just like washing my hands in a bathroom. I don't need someone's help. Like I can, that's one of the things I actually am capable of doing myself. Tuning my guitar, surprisingly. I'm not that great of a player, but I can tune my G string. So when it couldn't be tuned, it scared me. I mean, it was like the exorcist. It would go the opposite direction as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah, they were fun. They were a <laughs> lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe let me let me ask you real quick what um and maybe it was just your exposure to all these instruments and things coming in through the business, but where where did that sort of obsession or fascination start with the mechanics of guitars? Was it I mean, were you learning guitar at home? Like, where? how did that begin? You know, because you said you started with saxophone. Where did the guitar come in? Like I said, uh, the saxophone was a sexy-looking instrument, but nobody thought playing saxophone was a sexy thing. So I got my first acoustic guitar, and I put in a pickup on it, 
Um, when I traded up, my father let me borrow a Gibson jazz guitar. And because I took it only because it had electronics, nothing else did for me that I was, excuse me, that I was allowed to take home. Mm-hmm. Um, but shortly after that, this boom of these things called DiMarzio and Duncan and Mighty Might and all these other manufacturers started coming out with things that you could upgrade. And so my brother and I, in the very, very early 70s, were desecrating <laughs> Gibson Les Pauls for the most part. And we would change out pickups. We would change out the brass. Hard- we'd put in brass hardware, brass nut and put an upcharge on it. They were really great guitars, but who knew what they'd be worth today if we didn't do that? Because they were, you know, it was a nice setup and we messed with them. Is that why there's like guys, is that why there's guys on Reverb now with like whole boxes of just PAF humbuckers because guys like you in the 70s are like, who cares about these? Let's put in this super distortion. I came up with that name. No, no, no. I knew early on about about uh, the humbucker. Now, we changed these things out because they were just, you know, standard uh, T-top style, nothing special. Oh, the Norlin uh, era. No, no, we would, I, I would never do anything on anything that was pre-1960. That, that oh, man. We knew, we knew that one was better. But uh, also, I'm not pre, I, I'm, you know, I was three. So, <laughs> wasn't doing a lot then. But yeah, um, I got into it that way. And then um, at a very early age, I became the guitar and amp and effect buyer for the company. And that's when I started to really have a lot of fun. I was working with uh, Charvel on these crazy graphics, and I was working with Gibson. Um, you ever hear of a Gibson CMT? Yes. Okay, uh, that's, that's me. Uh, really? Yeah, Trish Moss, who is still with the Gibson company, and I it was one of these ways I was... Tr- you had to do a bunch of funky things to get stuff past Henry at the time. So, you know, we picked out these instruments. There's about 250 in total. And I bought, was buying them at these silly prices, and I was selling them at sillier prices. Uh, they were $1,000 when they first came out. They ended up at $1,250. They're about five grand, four or five grand now because they're great tops. But it was one of those instruments that I, I conspired with to get something that nobody else had. There was a, a lot of things like that. If, if during that era, there's a bunch of Gibson 330, excuse me, one, no, L5s and Super 400s and something called Nuclear Yellow. It's just wow. aging toner. Nuclear Yellow L5? Yeah, it's just toner, but we couldn't say that on the L5. It wasn't going to be approved. So we, we had some fun behind the scenes things. And... Uh, you know, I, I've designed with Gibson, with PRS, with Fender, with Ovation, with Martin, uh, you know, limited runs, fun stuff. Uh, I got, where's, yeah, like this was, for a brief period of time, we lost the Gibson line. Uh, it was it was one of these things that, a huge political situation. So I had no humbucking guitars. So I came out with this called the, um, this was our anniversary model. So it was a guitar designed for a price to go up against an SG. And it was very successful. And then we got the line back. But like, this is number one of 100. And it was uh, also a blue run. 
what? Is that the first CE? Oh, no, no, no. This is not the first CE. It's an early CE, but it's far from the first. That's it. But, you know, cool. um, that, these are things I used to do with manufacturers, because, which today is commonplace. You can go to anybody and order a certain amount in the color, and they'll make it for you. If you have, I don't know what the minimum quantity would be. But, you know, used to have a lot of fun with these kind of things when, when manufacturers had capacity. Now they don't mm -hmm. have any excess capacity. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. I actually realized listening to what you were saying earlier about how you're obsessed with numbers, it came to me in my head that this guitar is the kind of guitar you'd like because- Oh, that's gorgeous. So first off, it's a 1930 Epiphone, but it's the Super 4. It's called the Number Series. And they made them from one, zero, one, two, three, and four. And four was the most opulent. And to my knowledge, there's only eight on uh, known to even have I've been manufactured. Well, That's because beautiful. there's not this. I have not found an original, all original one. In fact, number this is number four twenty. Oh, serial number okay. four twenty. Okay. I got made. excited there for a minute. But but it's a number <laughs> now four. It all makes serial number four twenty. And the thing that was very interesting about it is the only one that's in the Archtop Museum is a. 12 to the fret, uh, 12 frets to the body guitar, and that's serial number 417. This is serial number 420, and it's 14 frets to the guitar, uh, to the body. I believe that this might actually be the first 14 fret to the body, certainly Epiphone and one of the first acoustics ever. Absolutely. Uh, Back then, everything was 12 to the body. The only other one is, and I have it in the other room, is an is 1930-021S Martin made three. It was 14 to the body. But I, I got this recently in a trade, and I, I kind of shrugged it off, like not being a, a big deal. And I found out that this is apparently the rarest Epiphone that has ever been manufactured. Like and I it said, wasn't, it, I never saw one. Didn't even have a name until this last year. Some nerdy guy found a, a flyer in one of his old advertisements. It's the Epiphone Seville. And this is the, the largest version of it. It's the largest guitar they ever made in 1930. And I beast. the 420th they ever made. Yeah. But number four, it's the number four. It says... Number four right here for you. <laughs> yes, we see on the, on the I'm video. I'm loving it. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to have to um, let you play this thing. Yes, there there definitely needs to be more between uh, you two for I'm sure the neurotic guitarist and all those continuations. But uh, we're coming to the end of part one on oh, no. 2020 with Sammy Ash. Please. Thank you Don't for hanging it. with us this hour. What? Don't say it. It's not the end. I don't want this well, to Well, it's end. not the end. We have the continuation in part two, and we have so many God. other questions. I'm looking forward to it. We're yeah. at the 50% Look, I'm mark. free tonight if you want to do five and six. <laughs> <laughs> seven, so, so many we, stories to share. We will have, yeah, we'll have plenty more stories to pick up with Sammy next week. Uh, check out 2020-d.com. Sammy, anything you want to plug, uh, you know, obviously, Sa Sam Ash Music, you know, check, check out the stores, go buy some things. Same ish music, check out the stores, go buy some things. But I, I do have, I, I, I created a, a Facebook page. I, I had a regular, like everyone had a Facebook page. And now I created something called Sammy's Guitar Gear and Guitar Stories. I follow about it. about two years now. And uh, I'm, it, there's no politics, there's no buying, there's no selling, there's no nothing. It's me uh, patting myself on the back daily on how cool I am. And that's kind of <laughs> what it is. So. <laughs> I want to be a part of this page. I'm I definitely going to follow it. With many likes that it is very cool. And I found out about that guitar, the pink guitar, 
by following him online. So I, I, I recommend everybody going and reading these stories because they're really cool and he might be patting himself on the back, but in fact, he did get the name Tube Screamer. So, so we'll share the case. links. Yeah, I, I, the link will know. be below in the description and uh, we'll pick this up next week. Sammy Ash, see you then. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 112, featuring Gene Jolly, a former executive at Guitar Center, musician's friend, QSC, and more. Check it out. What a music store gives you um, is two things. It's now, all right? There's, like, the economic celebrity is getting better, but it's not now. It never will be now, okay? So it's now. And the second thing is discover, right? And whether that's, I'm not playing yet, but I think I want to play, but I want to pick up one of those guitars and I want to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. And, you know, in the store, there's very often people who not only know the stuff, but they're enthusiastic about it. So you get, you just have this thing. And by the way, you might meet somebody else on the floor who's, you know, who's, hey, you know, I saw you checking that, you know, conversations happen and so forth. But the discovery is, I didn't know there was all this stuff, you know, and what's this and what's this? And just you just see lights go on and you see people walk out in a different state if they're if they're wired to become a musician, right? For a lot of people, a music source hell, but not for musicians. Musicians like this is this is like, you know, this is our trust. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.